Well, to obtain your driver's license in the state of Washington, you must pass a written exam. I know, I've driven on the roads as well. That's hard to believe. (laughs) But it's true, I assure you. Everyone on the roads today should have passed a written exam. One of the questions on this exam goes something like this. If you were driving in another driver's blind spot, you should A, move forward or drop back so the other driver can see you, B, keep a steady pace, C, stay in the driver's blind spot, or D, honk to let them know you are there. Well, the correct answer is A, move forward or drop back so the other driver can see you. But let me ask you this. What happens when the Word of God enters your blind spot? Each of us has one. It's this area of our lives or these areas of our lives where we tend to ignore. Perhaps it's an area of our lives that we can't see going about our days and somewhat an ignorance about it. When the Word of God enters this blind spot, do you ignore it? Do you keep going as though nothing is wrong? Or do you try to resolve it? I hope at least this morning we can acknowledge that we have a blind spot, maybe blind spots. And I hope as well that as we travel this road with these blind spots, this journey of life into the kingdom, my hope is that the incarnate word, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would see him as our mercy and as our help. And that as we wrestle with these blind spots, as they become apparent, we would come to Jesus receiving his compassion and receiving his mercy and receiving his help. Open up your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, verse 29. We've been working our way through the gospel of Matthew. We're going verse by verse. It's a type of preaching called expository preaching. You can hear in that word the term expose. We are attempting to expose the original meaning of the text. We want to bring this potent word of God then to bear on our lives. We want to apply the Bible to our daily living. What our message this morning, we will learn that Christ grants mercy to blind beggars. Jesus grants mercy to blind beggars. And you and I, friend, we are blind beggars. The Bible often uses blindness to describe the spiritual condition. Now, often, we refer to non-Christians this way. We would refer to those who are unsaved as blind. We mean spiritually blind. And we do that because the Bible does that. In Isaiah, for example, a call goes out to those who are spiritually dead or blind. Bring out the people who are blind, says the Bible, even though they have eyes, and the deaf, even though they have ears. Paul will write in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, that at the very core of unbelief stands Satan, 
The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel. And in his day, Jesus spoke of the religious leaders. They themselves are lost. We saw this back in Matthew chapter 15. Quote, they are blind guides of the blind. But the Bible also speaks of us this way. You and I, as believers. Perhaps uncomfortably, it speaks of us this way. Because the truth is, is that we have blind spots. There's a a blindness that may yet reside within us. It's not that we reject the gospel or though we refuse Jesus Christ. It's not as though we're walking away from the faith. That's not the message. But it is possible for us to live with some level of a spiritual ignorance or a blindness. Take, for example, Revelation chapter 3. Jesus speaks through John to one of his churches. It's the church of Laodicea. And he calls this church, quote, lukewarm. This church was comfortable. This church was at ease. This church had no major fires to put out. And what does he say? He says, you say I am rich and have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. This is Jesus speaking to his people. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter's going to list the qualities of the Christian. The believer is marked by things like self-control, and perseverance, and godliness. He then concludes in verse 9, he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from former sins. You see, believers may be blind. You and I may be ignorant of sins or sections of our lives not given wholly and fully to Jesus Christ. And our message today is meant to open our eyes to shine a light in that blindness. To borrow from our question from the driver's exam, to blow the horn in the blindness. And then to recognize this and to bring it to Jesus and receive his mercy. Well, let's look at Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 29. We'll go through verse 34. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. And two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, what do you want me to do? for you. They said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. Well, the first three verses, I want to see the blindness. 
The physical blindness of these men represents a spiritual blindness. In verse 29, we see there a group. A group departs Jericho. And in this group is Jesus and his disciples. Going back into verse 17, we learn there that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's going up to Jerusalem. Again then, in verses 18 and 19... He informed his disciples that he would go there and he would die there. He would also rise again. So here is Jesus on his final journey to Jerusalem. And that makes this, that makes these days, the final days of his life. Many other Jews would have been en route to Jerusalem They were headed there to celebrate the Passover. This is a a commemoration of the deliverance from Egyptian slavery. uh, You can read of it back in Exodus. And this gathering is a way to remember that and to celebrate that. They gather together to praise God. In verse 29, a large crowd followed Jesus. If you look down to chapter 21, the next account is what we call the triumphal entry. It's this gang that's going to go to Jerusalem with Jesus. That's his next stop. That's his last stop. And these people were expecting a Messiah or a a king to go into this capital city of Israel. And he's going to go in. He's going to expel those hated Romans. They've ruled and reigned in their kingdom for 80-some years. And they'll shout, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a large crowd with large hopes. Today's account takes place in a city called Jericho. They're on their way to Jerusalem. And you might recount this, you might recall this city from an Old Testament account. Joshua led the battle of Jericho. That's right. And what happened back in the Old Testament as Israel went into this promised land is they had quite a bit of conquest to do. And Jericho was target number one under the leadership of Joshua. And to take you back, Joshua would take the the people of God and they would march around this city once per day for six days. Then on day number seven, they marched around seven times. The priests blew trumpets. The people shouted. The walls came down. This is that Jericho. That's the Jericho of today's account. And by the way, it's on this same trip through town that a man named Zacchaeus would come follow Christ. However, this road connecting Jericho to Jerusalem, well, this was no guarantee. Because you might also recall that when Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan, he spoke of a man going down to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Jericho, who fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him, and leaving him half dead. Apparently, this was a dangerous route in the ancient Near East. That's 15 miles from Jericho to Jerusalem. Can you imagine that? 15 miles. 15 miles to your death. Jesus knew that he was going to Jerusalem to die for the sins of his people. 
And as he is walking along, the disciples followed. And this large crowd clamored for the coronation of the king. Passing through, they would have cast quite a large cloud of brown dust. The cadence of sandals flopping together on the move. There would have been a a hum of the crowd as they journeyed along. And this cry fills the air. Lord, have mercy on us. Two blind men sitting by the road. They call out to Jesus. Three Gospels record this exchange. We have Matthew, that's our Gospel. And then there's Mark and Luke, two other Gospels. Matthew records two blind men. Luke records one blind man, quote, sitting by the road begging. Mark's most specific, he names him a blind beggar named Bartimaeus. Now, Mark and Luke are focusing on on the most prominent of the two men when they recall this story. And Matthew is giving us the the record of, of both men. The Gospels report the same story in different ways. You could see this as you read any newspaper account of the same story taking place. Everyone interprets it. Everyone reports it in a bit of a different way. We know these men can't see Jesus, but they can hear him. In some cases, they can hear better. I read in a study produced by the Montreal Neurological Institute that blindness, especially occurring among the early blind, those who were born blind or those who went blind in early years, they tend to have better hearing. I guess at birth, the brain's center where vision and hearing, where all of these elements come together, very early on, they have time to, to readjust and reconfigure themselves, especially as life begins. So we're not sure of the complete background, but the commotion seems to have been so great that it's almost hard to miss what's happening. Luke, in Luke's account, now hearing a crowd going by, Bartimaeus began to inquire what this was. And they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. We should also note at this point the type of world these men lived in. Now, you and I live in a society that considers the blind. We think about the blind when it comes to technology and to travel and so on. But in the days of Jesus, there was no such consideration. Not one organization existed. If you were blind, you were on your own. Medicine was not what it is today. One might go blind at birth. We mentioned that. One Bible dictionary describes the gonorrhea of the eyes. Germs from the mother pass to the eyes of the infant. Within three days, inflammation, pus, and swelling would be evident. In such cases, primitive treatment cannot prevent some permanent or even total damage to the eye. This could even be viewed as a sign of God's curse. Over in the Gospel of John in chapter 9, the disciples will ask Jesus of a blind man, who sinned? This man or his parents that he would be born blind. Blindness could occur while still young. Babies and young children also were threatened by infectious ophthalmia. 
carried by flies. That disease caused heavy crusting, droopy eyelids, loss of eyelashes, eventually clouding of the cornea, then total blindness. Adults were not immune. Even making it into adulthood, one could still become blind in the ancient Near East. Side effects from malaria, long exposure to sandstorms, sun glare in the desert, accidents, punishment. We don't know why these two men became blind. Even the word in verse 34 isn't very helpful. The word is regained. But that word can mean either they gained eyesight for the first time or they got it back from before they lost it. But I can tell you that in this time, these men would have become outcasts. They resorted to begging. We heard that in the other accounts. Sometimes they existed alone, even in in groups. There's a pair of them together in today's story. In fact, a Greek historian named Strabo recorded that the Jericho region had a good deal of balsam. And it was believed that that was good and helpful for blindness. So there could have been quite a population of the blind in this very area. But Matthew zooms in on these two men. And for them, the chance of a lifetime passes only yards in front of them. And they know of the Lord's reputation. They know that Jesus of Nazareth, that he can heal. Look how they speak of him. They call him the son of David. These guys paid attention in Sunday school. That's a title for the Old Testament Messiah. He's in the line of King David. He'd be like a great, great, great grandson of David, or, or some, we'd have to count the greats, some, some effect there. Even going back to Matthew chapter 1, Matthew's going to give us his genealogy. He calls it the genealogy of G- Jesus the Messiah, or the son of David. That makes Jesus the anointed one, the promised Messiah, the one they've been looking for, predicted in the Old Testament. But not everyone appreciates their yelling. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet. In Luke's account, he says it this way, those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet. Oftentimes, in the Gospels, Jesus is out in front along with his disciples We don't know who these people were, but I suspect it could have been the disciples up front with Jesus, once again playing self-appointed bodyguard. You might recall back in Matthew chapter 19, there they tried to turn away young children. They were viewed as an inconvenience to Jesus. Some children were brought to him so that they might lay hands, so that he might lay hands on them and pray, and the disciples rebuked them. Either way, we know that this is more than just one self-appointed bodyguard. This is a group or a crowd of people trying to keep these blind men away from Jesus. They are sternly telling. That's one word in the Greek. Back in chapter 17, the same word is used to describe how Jesus speaks to demons. And there does seem to be some back and forth between the blind men and the bouncers. They're yelling for Jesus. They're sternly warned. They're yelling again. The verbs possess this ongoing aspect, as though this kept going on and on, this back and forth. 
Do you see the contrast? The mercy of Jesus and the mercy of the crowd. You see, there's a blindness in this passage, but I ask you, who is blind? This throng of people, they clamor around the king, 15 miles to the capital city. We will enter with a triumphal entry. There are possibilities. There's expectations. They line the road for this, but so too do these two blind beggars. An inconvenience, an interruption, and even a delay. I see in the crowd a blindness, that there is a lack of mercy to the needs around them. There's a refusal to help them. The crowd has 20-20 vision, but they are blind. How about you? Do you have a similar blind spot this morning? You're following Jesus. You are journeying to your next destination in this life. Who around you is crying out for help? Or do you live in such a way that you've managed to insulate yourself from the needs around you and for those needing mercy on the periphery? How are you doing with mercy? What happens when inconvenient people collide with your plans? Maybe the two blind men illustrate our condition in a bit of a different way. We see in these two men beggars, sidelined. Presumably for some time they've been where they are. Something at some point in their life happened that that sidelined them. They've been knocked out of action. They can't see. They can't get up. They can't go. They can't follow Jesus. They sit and they wait. Maybe something sidelined you. Maybe you're not following Christ or serving Christ. Maybe you've been knocked out of that journey. Maybe there's anger or bitterness or or, or real hurt and pain. What spiritual blindness do we have this morning? I mean, we're only human. We have blind spots. If we acknowledge them, if we bring them to Jesus, if we cry out, Christ will reply. And he'll do it with great mercy. And he may do it with a question. Verses 32 and 33, he has this invitation. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? This is is too good. I want you to see how the Lord responds to our needs. You know, the first observation I made is somewhat drawn from the text, but I, I can't get beyond how unlike Jesus is from us. I put in my notes, he is simply other. O-T-H-E-R. That's as good as I can do. Because are there not times where we try to grapple for words to describe the greatness of God? The English language does not possess them. We can go so far and then we need to stop. Because in this account, we learn that Jesus, his ways are so unlike ours. It's almost counterintuitive. At some point, you and I might run out of mercy. 
that the silo filled with compassion for other people, it's empty. But that never happens with Jesus. He always has more mercy to give you and more compassion to lend. That's the goodness of Christ. There's this wonderful passage in Isaiah chapter 46. And there Isaiah is contrasting the greatness of God over against idols that are are fashioned or created by the hands of men. And you see there that nothing on earth can capture who God is. Remember the things long past, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. John Feinberg wrote a book about God's attributes, actually borrowed. The name of the book is borrowed from this passage. It's entitled, No One Like Him. And in that book, he says that God is indeed a king, but he is a king who cares. And we see that in Jesus the Christ this morning. In this passage, Jesus is in every way a king. He's going to be welcomed as a king just up the road. But he's a king who cares. And you need to know that for yourself this morning. That whatever your blindness, whatever he floats to the top, whatever light he shines on that dark corner of your heart, you will receive mercy from him. Because he's a king who cares. He loves you and he wants to help. He is a God of infinite mercy. There's no one like him. Well, secondly, he stops. I mean, Jesus had things to do. Jesus had places to be, but he stopped. He stopped for two blind beggars. I mean, this morning, we recognize that Jesus has an entire universe to tend to. The other night, we were discussing the power of God, and we mentioned that, that God upholds the universe. And my son Matthew, who was five, asks, where does the universe stop? That's one of those questions where I ask, Mom, you want to handle this one? (laughs) But we can consider events even more locally, even on this globe. I mean, right now there's a war in Ukraine. Diseases are morphing and spreading. There's measles and Ebola, the Omicron BA2 variant. What in the world's going to happen with Twitter? But perhaps you felt that way too, like praying about what we would consider such basic and simple things. Doesn't God have bigger things to worry about? Aren't there more important things for him to tend to? Does he really hear these prayers? Does he really hear my prayers? But I can assure you that he stops, that his ear is listening, and that because he's the God of mercy, he hears all of your prayers no matter how you rank them, how big or how small. When you cry out to Christ, he is all ears. He stops and hears your prayers. He knows all of your prayers. Your Lord could recite back to you every prayer you've ever prayed to him, and he could do them exactly how you prayed them. He could tell you exactly how you were feeling, and he could give them to you in the exact order you prayed them. That's how well he knows you and how merciful and attentive he is to your prayers. Because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore I shall call upon him as long as I live. Psalm 116, verse 2. Jesus stops when you cry out. Thirdly, 
He calls. He calls. In, in Mark's account of this story, Jesus stopped and said, call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, take courage, stand up, he's calling for you. Jesus is not some impersonal force. He is not some neutral party waiting to see what's going to happen next. Jesus is involved, and he is active in our lives. And to those who cry out, Christ says, yes, bring your requests to me. Fourthly, that takes us fourthly to this invitation. Jesus invites us to bring our burdens to him. What do you want me to do for you? That's his question. Isn't that amazing? He asks these men, what do you want me to do for you? That's a humbling question. Not so much for the Lord. There's no way Jesus didn't know what these blind men would say, but certainly it had to humble the two men who responded. They had to articulate their need to Jesus. That is a way of of humbling the heart. They had to, to put it into prayer, if you will, to express their desires, to tell Jesus what they wanted. I also think this question is somewhat diagnostic for us because how we answer it reveals a good deal about our hearts. Some may ask for money or or a house or or pain-free living, but others will ask him for forgiveness, holiness, for greater use by the Lord. Of course, it reveals the heart of our Lord. We know it's a heart of mercy. That is essentially what they're asking, is it not? Have mercy on us, which is what I observe fifthly, that that God is merciful. To have mercy is to have compassion or to have pity and to have that upon someone who's in distress. It's different from grace. There must be some kind of distress or pain present for there to be mercy. And we see that clearly in these two men, do we not? I mean, they had a need. They had a major need. And Christ understands our needs. And he knows the best way to meet them. When you cry out to Christ, he extends mercy. That's a similar invitation for you today. If you see your need, if the Spirit during this message is starting to to bring things to light, bring them to Christ. I want us to see finally then, in our blindness, Christ invites us to receive compassion. To receive compassion. Verse 34, moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. Jesus opens eyes. I think this is the fourth time in the Gospel of Matthew where we've seen this mercy or this compassion of Jesus. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. Notice that, he felt compassion. Matthew chapter 14, verse 14, when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them. And he healed the sick. One more time in Matthew chapter 15, verse 32, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the people. 
I suppose the Bible authors could have said that Jesus had compassion, but they said that he felt compassion. The Greek literature outside of the Bible uses the word for compassion to describe the inward parts of a person, the heart, the liver, the kidneys, and so on. In other words, this is an emotion that you can feel. Perhaps if I could say it this way, there's a physical sensation associated with it. At least the emotion is that strong that we might describe it that way, just like the Bible did. I feel compassion for the people. Our Lord saw the condition of the people. He saw their blindness. He saw them begging beside the road, and he saw their humility. Notice that these two beggars, they were unashamed to call out to Jesus. They were unconcerned about what other people might think. They had to be unpopular. They were told to be quiet. They did not. Jesus saw their persistence. He saw that they kept calling out to him. Our Lord delights in rewarding beggars who persist in their begging. Remember Jacob from the Old Testament. He he wrestled all night. Cornelius, he's the first Gentile Christian. And of course, Elijah, he prayed for a drought and he got it. Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight. Richard Mayhew lists the characteristics of divine healing. Whenever divine healing takes place in the Bible, in the Gospels in particular, it's immediate. There's three exceptions to this. However, all of these exceptions took place within a few minutes after the healing. It's one of the, another blind man in Bethsaida that took a few minutes after the healing. There's the lepers who actually are fully healed traveling to the priest to report of their healing. And then there's this wonderful account of Jesus mixing clay and spittle to heal another blind man. A few minutes later, he could see. The point is that the healing of Jesus was immediate. We see also in the Bible that when Jesus healed, it was public. It took place on ordinary, unplanned occasions. It included illnesses untreatable by the medical community. That was clear in the text today. His healing is complete, the healing's irreversible, and it was undeniable even to detractors. Can you imagine these two guys on this day? They woke up that morning, just anticipating another day, alongside the road, begging, hoping that they would receive enough to continue on for another day. And in the distance... They heard a crowd. Maybe Roman soldiers. Maybe it was a funeral or a wedding. They've sat on this road before. But this was different. And one of them asked, what's going on? When someone answers, it's Jesus the Nazarene. And I bet all the feeling left their bodies. This is it. This is their one chance. This is that man stranded upon an island as that one plane flies over. And they cry out to him. They're just yelling in the direction of the noise, hoping that someone hears them. And the people are telling them to be quiet, and they wouldn't. And they're hoisted up from the ground that day. They were not moved down the alley. 
out of the way of Jesus in this procession. They were not treated as an inconvenience, not on this day, because they knew that they weren't moved down that alley when they heard the voice, what do you want me to do for you? And I bet, with tears rolling down, their dust-caked cheeks, they say, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. And our Lord felt that. And the Bible says he was moved with compassion. And he touched their eyes. And immediately they regained their sight. The first thing they would have seen is the palm of Jesus when they opened up their eyes. And then they would have seen his face. And then they would have seen a blue sky and the birds and that street where they lived begging. This would have been immediate. They would have regained their sight right away. There is no delay. This would have been very public. I bet in the crowd that day, you could have heard a pin drop. Everybody is quiet, standing, watching, speechless. People knew that the divine was in their presence. This would have been an ordinary day. No one was expecting this, especially these blind men. And Jesus cured what no one else could. There was no medicine or surgery possible. And I can tell you that when they were healed that day, it would have been complete and irreversible because Jesus heals no one halfway. Don't miss the final two words of our chapter. These two men followed him. Those healed by Jesus follow him. These two men would shout Hosanna in a city they would see for the first time. As they joined a Christ, they would follow forever. What do you see this morning? If you don't follow Christ, do you see him passing by? Do you understand that there is, is a window of time? We read that in Ecclesiastes. God has given a time for all things. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord. And to our God, for he will have compassion on him, and he will abundantly pardon. Perhaps for some of you this morning, a light has gone on. And that for the first time, you not only understand the words that I'm saying, but you're desiring to follow the Jesus I describe. That is a good thing. That is a blindness lifting. And if you realize that you have sin and that you are separated from God and you cry out for mercy, you will receive it in abundance. It will be an abundant pardon. Christ grants mercy to blind beggars. For the rest of us, for the church this morning, I want to give you a prayer to pray. I want you to pray this only if you can do it from your heart and you're willing when you hear what's involved. Now, when I describe this, some of our hearts are going to immediately resist this because what could happen is that significant change may come to your life. 
God may very well answer your prayer. He may show you a blind spot, and he may heal you. I invite you to pray quite simply, Lord, I want my eyes to be opened. Lord, I want my eyes to be opened. This is a little scary because we have blind spots and we're probably pretty comfortable living the way we're living right now. But God might just answer that prayer and shake up your life and change your life. But don't fear that prospect. Fear coming back in here next Sunday unchanged. Most of you know, all of us should, that if you pray this prayer, God will have mercy on you. God will not come to you harsh and angry, looking to condemn and judge, excited that finally you've prayed this way so he could thunder down upon your life. That is not the Jesus of the Bible. He will respond to you with great mercy and great love, and it will be a tender change that he brings to your life. Christ grants mercy to blind beggars. Let's pray. Oh, Father, there is something scary and and fearful about praying this way. But we also recognize that's a little silly because you are a merciful God who loves us and who hears our prayers. And we know that your desires and your will for us, that they're good. So I pray for us as the united people of God, as the church at Emmanuel, that you would open our eyes and you would show us our blind spots. And I recognize the position that, that I occupy and what that might mean for us, for me, for us as a church. But we trust you and we know that we belong to you and all this is for you. Oh, Father, make us into the people that you want us to be Show us our blind spots and give us eyes to see. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.